0: Hello and welcome to The CA Agenda, a brand new podcast brought to you by iCAS. I'm your host, Indy Hoti, and over the next few months I'll be speaking with some truly inspirational CAs about the challenges and opportunities currently facing the accountancy profession and the wider business world. This podcast is part of the CA Agenda Thought Leadership content series from iCAS, which focuses on the three key themes of technology, trust and talent. Go to ICAST.com and search CA Agenda to explore our thought leadership content and learn more about the agenda. On this episode of the podcast, recorded in December 2019, I'm joined by ICAS President Mike McKeon. Mike is currently the non-executive director and chair of the audit committee at National Express. Mike has previously been group director at 7Trent PLC and Novar PLC, spending a total of 15 years in these roles. Prior to that, he held various senior roles both in the UK and internationally at Rolls-Royce, Elf Atochem, and Pricewaterhouse. Mike is currently the chair of the order committee of a real estate company in Prague. He was previously a senior independent director at the Merchants Trust. So welcome to the show. Mike, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here. You've had a fascinating career journey. Tell us, Tell us about some of the early days of, of Mike McKee, and how did you get into the accounting profession? Well, I got into the accounting profession
1: almost by accident. Um, I was studying economics at university. Um, my first director of studies was a now well-known uh, figure of the accounting profession, Professor Sir David Tweedy, a past president of this institute, and uh, he got me interested in accountancy. So on
0: graduating, I decided to go into the profession. Wow. So it seems as if you had one individual who's quite a pivotal figure in, you, in your in your career and your decision to go to, to go, go down that road.
1: Well, certainly he, David, opened my eyes to the opportunities that might be out there to be an accountant. It's not something I really had thought about. I was looking at economics, which is a subject I always enjoyed uh, and to some degree still do. Uh,
0: but on that basis, I thought, well, you know, this looks like an interesting
1: profession and it was
0: one I went for. And talking about your, your your early career so you spent you spent your your first few years at price waterhouse i did yes in edinburgh and then you transferred over over to paris is that correct
1: yes i i qualified and then uh, pretty much immediately i up and went to paris um, i wanted to go back abroad my, my childhood was largely my parents lived abroad my childhood was largely abroad and so i wanted to do that again and um, I enjoyed my time in Edinburgh, but I thought it was time to move and Paris seemed like a good place. Uh, It's got lots of attractions, so I went there and uh, was originally for six months and stayed for 11 years. And was that part of the plan? There was no plan, really. (laughs) Uh, It was just going to do something different. And uh, I stayed two years in a professional firm in Pricewaterhouse, uh, and during that time I I did quite a lot of um, very significant work with uh, large French companies, French groups. Uh, including a stint in in Francophone Africa um, where I remember going into the jungle as an oil platform for Shell which was a bit exciting because you couldn't wait till Friday to arrive to get out of there (laughs) again. Um, But um, there were some interesting times that we had there and it was a great great
0: experience. Wow, Uh, who who expected um, an auditing career to take you to the jungles of Africa, right? You would be surprised where an (laughs) auditing career can take you. And so, Mike, you've had, a, you've had a very illustrious career, lots of senior executive level experience. Was that the dream or vision of Mike McKeon when he first started out in the country profession? When I first started out,
1: what I wanted to do was really find an interesting role uh, and see how that would develop. Um, and that, for me, was all about the job itself plus the people I worked with. And increasingly, I suppose, it was less about the job but more about the people. Um because in a way if you if you go through the financial uh, hierarchy, you, you're doing similar jobs, but maybe at a bit different scale, but you're above all working with different people. Now, I've also done general management jobs as well. Uh, and I've've enjoyed those. Somehow I never really stayed in those very long. I always got a more senior finance role to do. Um, which was interesting. But I've always believed that the finance has a unique position in a company because there really are no boundaries. You can go anywhere. You can go and talk to anybody. You can go and see anything. And certainly as a CFO, that's how I viewed my role. My role was very much to get out and about and meet our people and make sure that they understand what we were trying to achieve.
0: And I understood what they were trying to do as part of that achievement. So Mike, when you took on the... Uh, ICAS president role. One of your pledges was around restoring trust in the profession, and given the number of corporate failures we've seen, Carillion, Thomas Cook, the like, etc., and the the global financial crisis of oh eight oh nine, I guess the, the the pertinent question here is: Is there a crisis of trust in the audit profession? I don't believe there's a crisis of trust. I believe there's a challenge on trust. Um, because
1: I think that the people who work in the wider ecosystem of business and auditing and investment probably understand the value that is still brought forward by trust, but I think in the wider public it's poorly understood, and uh, they don't really understand the linkage between corporate failure and what auditors do or don't do. Now, that's not to be critical of the wider public, because quite frankly, if you don't know, then you will obviously have questions about it. So. I think the the issue is broader. I think, personally, that we've lost trust in institutions in general. I think that personally goes back to the financial crisis in two thousand and eight nine. I think people started to question lots of things. Then you know, who could they trust? Was their bank solvent? Was their money safe? Uh, why are we you know, suffering all this austerity when something else happened to somebody else? And I think uh, we've we've moved to a place where we trust each other maybe more than we trust institutions and and professionals and experts. Um, that will take a long time to recover, but I think it is recoverable. Uh, mainly because I think the economic uh, imperative is that it will be recoverable because people will need to rely on experts for for example their pensions because other people manage their money and. Quite frankly, they can't do it themselves, so they've got to trust somebody to do it. And therefore, you've got to look again at the expertise that might exist
0: and will exist in the professionals and everything that goes around them. Sir Donald Bryden is undertaking a review of the future of audit on behalf of government, which is due later this year, and he made a really interesting comment in, a, in an article recently around the sort of current sort of public mood and wider perception. And I'll, I'll sort of mention it verbatim, but he, he, he said, I'm a little troubled by the current mood that reaches for a shotgun aimed at auditors every time there's a corporate problem. What are your, what are your thoughts on that statement?
1: Well, I, I agree with it, uh, and I understand why the public does take aim at auditors, but it's actually misplaced, uh, the aim that is, uh, because I believe the the primary responsibility for corporate failure lies with the directors of the company, and I am one, so I can tell you that for certain. Um, and it seems to have been overlooked in many of these discussions in the wider, wider public sphere. That's not to say that auditors don't need to raise their game just as directors need to raise their game. Uh, we do. Um, and we need to probably do a better job of being transparent about what we actually do to assure the wider public and stakeholders in general that we actually are good stewards of our companies. We actually are good um, uh, performers when it comes to the governance of our uh, our businesses um, because it's been severely tested. And I don't think we can deny that. Uh, we just need to find a way c- Collectively and individually, dare I say it, to um, push the notion that we actually are working very hard to ensure that um, trust is something they can they can take forward and believe in what these what we're doing. Now that doesn't mean to say that there won't be corporate collapses. There will be, mm-hmm. uh, and I think this is where perhaps the, the the thing is a bit disjointed because people believe somehow that auditing is going to stop companies going bust well it, it never can it it can't because companies go bust for a myriad of reasons and audits probably not one of them um so uh i think uh, it's going to take a while for us to do this and maybe donald bryden will come up with some good ideas i'm
0: sure he will um we'll have to wait and see so that's a fascinating insight mike and i think we we appreciate that there are challenges in the audit industry but however when when people hear about corporate collapses in the newspaper the sort of mind and attention for the wider society goes on to the auditors. So then is it a question of one sort of educating people around what audit is and isn't, or is it around changing the scope of audit to make sure it meets the needs of wider stakeholders? I think
1: it's probably a combination of both. Um, On the one hand, we probably need to explain better what uh, we actually do, both as directors and as auditors. That won't be enough. I think we have to reinforce uh, controls. We have to reinforce assurance. Um, So in a way, I think we've come to a point now where we've stretched the statutory definition of an audit, financial audit, uh, as almost as far as we can take it now. Um, There are other things that need to be assured, whether it's uh, environmental ESG-type relationships, uh, alternative performance measures, KPIs, if you like, are these true and fair? Uh, Just as we might say the balance sheet's true and fair. Uh, Well, I don't think the level of assurance on these other matters are anything close to what a financial audit does. Um, And yet, we're stretching the audit into these areas where we are asking them questions like, are they compatible or not inconsistent with, which is a bit of a weaselly words for saying, Mm -hmm. we've had a look at them, but they look okay, don't they? But uh, well, that's not really assurance. You want to actually be positively working to assure that these alternative measures actually are. So, for example, if a business is dependent on market share, like a retailer, uh, and you consistently report a, a, an erroneous market share, and your reality is that your market share has been going down, then your business is not quite in the shape that you thought it was. Uh, and I think that's probably, you know, some companies have got caught out with that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we should be probably looking at those metrics. And assuring them—that's a different question, but that's where we we'll probably have to get to.
0: No, it's a, it's a very interesting point, point. it's something that um, Sir Donald Bryden actually mentioned in another another article as well around around seeking, I guess, seeking for audit to become more informative and not just a compliance checking function, and one which helps to maintain and grow trust in a business as a whole.
1: Well, it has become more informative uh, over the years. I. I, I My first involvement with ICAS was back in 2010 as a direct result of this financial crisis when I got interested in some of the more fundamental things that were going Mm -hmm. on, or rather not going on. And I I joined a working group as vice chair of a a working group that came up with a a report called The Future of Assurance. And that has been a fairly influential document and still is to some degree. We, we, for example, suggested in that document that there should be a long-form audit report. What do we have now? We have a long-form audit report. We suggested uh, that the auditors should sign off the accounts that says they're fair, balanced and reasonable. What do we have today? We have fair, balanced and understandable. That emanates directly from ICAS's position and thought leadership that came out in 2010. We also suggested the front end of the annual report should be separately assured, not audited, assured by a separate contracted audit uh, or assurance process. And Now, that didn't get any traction at that time because I think that was a step too far. But its day may well have come now. And we've again reiterated to the FRC uh, in recent meetings we've had with them that we should think about this again. Uh, and then almost skinny back the financial audit back to what it started, which was the financial statements, and stop stressing it in there, and then have another series of assurance processes on the front end, so whether it's on a remuneration report, whether it's on the business model, whether it's on the key performance indicators. Actually, in my last company, which is, a public, which is a public utility, we did that for our regulator anyway. And we did it for ourselves because we used to publish 20 key performance indicators, some of which were required for our regulator. Um, but all of which determined the our overall Employee Bonus Scheme. So mm-hmm. we actually got them audited because the remuneration committee demanded it. So it can be done. It can be done. We did it
0: because we wanted to do it. We didn't do it because we had to do it. Touching on some of the points you made. So it seems like ICAS has been quite, quite influential in terms of its thought leadership and and its advice around the future of the profession. Would you agree? I would
1: agree. And I think I think I'd also go further and say we're not scared to say things that might necessarily be outwith the norm at the mm. time we say it. So everything has its time. Uh, and uh, I think what we have is access to members and indeed others who join us, um, who, who are good thinkers about various subjects and experts on subjects. And they're able to produce some pretty thought-provoking pieces. Future of Assurance was one I was involved with, and I think it's, it's had its mark. Um, but we've also produced, some, I think, some pretty good responses to the consultations that came out with the Kingman Review for the FRC, mm-hmm. to the CMA, and indeed for Bryden. Now, if you look at the Kingman Review, you will see many of the things we suggested uh, are actually in the final report. Uh, CMA, perhaps less so, and we'll wait and see what Sir Donald Bryden comes up with. Um, but we've tried always to think beyond the current state and think about where we need to get to that's been a tradition of what ICAS has done and
0: I think we're continuing with that tradition today so another area that's very topical at the moment in terms of audit is around technology and there are lots of advances in technology that are changing the way that 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 we're working so what are your thoughts around how technology is being implemented and used within the context of the audit profession
1: Well, it's undeniable that technology is having a major impact pretty much across the board. So in companies, uh, as well as in audit practices and how they audit, um, we've moved away from what I would describe as intelligent automation, where computers helped us do the same things we did before, but quicker and more effectively, if you like, with less errors. To I think now where we're actually being able to ask computers to do things where we you know they are, they're intelligent enough to actually answer some of the questions themselves. Where that's exactly going, I don't really know. But I think uh, I, as I reflect on that, uh, and I think I, I published something on this not so long ago in one of my columns, um, it's almost back to the future because originally when computers came out, it was always about, the issue was always about the you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Um, and I think that's still going to be true, uh, irrespective of how clever our computers become. Because if you give them the components of, uh, say, history, they will analyze it to death much quicker than you could or I could uh, and come up with a solution. But if in the last history, for example, in the recruitment of accountants, this particular firm only ever recruited young white males, guess what the uh, intelligent computer is going to say? Well, actually, that's what we should do again, because it worked. But that's not necessarily the outcome you want. Uh, so you've got to be a little bit careful about what you put in to make sure you understand what you want out. So think of, think about for a moment uh, almost starting with the outcome, what do you want to achieve, and then figure out how the computer and how the artificial intelligence is going to cope with the input you give it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you may give it directly or it may take it from other places. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to understand the the ecosystem which operates around the art of the intelligence computers that you've got today. Because if you fail to do that, people still have to dominate what these machines do. And if you fail to do that, then you will be basically losing control of the outcome, and that's not a good place to be. So that has implications for training, that has educa- implications for education, that has implications for, dare I say, accountants and how they're trained today. Um, it, it is not straightforward and I think we we cannot afford to default to I trust the black box
0: because that's where we risk going if we're not careful and lots of very interesting points you made there I guess I'll touch on one of them and that's really around I guess the structural changes and I, I I totally agree with you the fact that the quality of AI in the future really relies on the programming and what we put into those systems however I guess part of me can't deny the fact that, you know, where previously you'd have an audit engagement, you have a number of analysts on the ground which are sort of testing a sample of, you know, invoices or transactions or whatever they are. Whereas now, a a an an AI-based system can, can test all of them. You don't necessarily need to test a sample, for example. Does that structurally change the the need for the number of sort of auditors or accountants we have on the ground
1: well it certainly changes the skill set you need mm-hmm. um, I don't necessarily know whether it changes the number um, but it certainly changes the skill set because whereas before you had to physically locate where the files were pull them out the files have a look at them do what you had to do then put them back again now you have to do that but with a machine and uh, you have to do that on a level of complexity which isn't that you're not necessarily familiar with so you have to know how to ask the right questions of the machine, and you have to know what the hell the machine produces. So, yes, you can go nowadays because the power is such that you can go onto an entire revenue file for a whole year and look at every single transaction. But what do you do when it comes out with 1,173 1, exceptions? Program it again until you come out with 43 exceptions? I, I, you know, Those 1,173 exceptions tell you something, um, but I'm not sure you know what they're telling you until you actually know what questions you're asking. So uh, I think we just shifted the problem, really. We haven't actually resolved the problem. We we've got another tool in the toolbox to do the work that we need to achieve. And by the way, the outcome is still the same. We need to have a good quality audit that allows us to say that these accounts are true and fair and fair, balanced and understandable. All we've got is a different tool and uh, it may be quicker. It may be, dare I say it, cheaper. I suspect not. But it
0: it still has to serve the outcome in the end I love the analogy around sort of the tool in the toolbox I, I think I, I, I completely agree with you that's in my mind exactly what it is I, It feels as if it's, it's, it's another string to our bow in terms of what we what we have uh, available to us however it still requires that element of judgment that element of technical expertise
1: and remember if you if you step back a little bit from Uh, financial accounts today are largely dominated by um, judgments around fair-value balance sheet items. Uh, So actually the transactional side of accounts are relatively straightforward these days. They are historical. So did we sell 10 widgets for £10 each? Well you can check that. Now if it's a million widgets at £50 each then you can get the machine to check it and it will do it in five minutes or three minutes depending on the power of your computer. But that's historical fact. But actually, many, many of the judgments that audit committees and CFOs get involved with these days is, is the goodwill on my balance sheet impaired or not? Uh, are the provisions for my liabilities on my financial derivatives sound or not? And a lot of that is done through uh, discounted cash flow modeling. Mm-hmm. Those can't be audited with a computer. They still require people to do that. It's a business model. Uh, it's, it's a future model which has got assumptions in it. If those assumptions are wrong, the outcome's wrong. Uh, so, what you need to do is scour uh, a range of options and see where these things lie. So most of the time, certainly in my experience of audit committees, is we are spending time on balance sheet items, which is looking at the quasi-value of a business, uh, is for example the, ba- you know, the, the, the balance sheet assets still sustainable, are they not impaired? It, 30 years ago, you would find most assets on most balance sheets were bricks and mortar or machines. Mm-hmm. That's not true anymore, because the 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 assets are now pretty much intangibles. Uh, they arise through either uh, R&D or they arise through various other things, so uh, mainly mergers and acquisitions. So it, it is a different world now, and I'm not sure that um, Computers will help us that much in those areas. They'll help us in a lot of other areas. So for example, I in my last job, when I was CFO, we started to put in uh, we started put in big data mm-hmm. and I very quickly realized well we had the software, we didn't have the capability to use it. Uh, and so I think we, I remember we hired uh, a guy with a PhD in maths to actually program this thing because none of us knew how to do it but very quickly realized they also had to hire some people to actually work out how to translate what the user needed in terms of outcomes into techno speak for this guy to do the programming because he didn't speak the same language as everybody else. And so whereas the business people wanted this, that, and the other, they couldn't go directly to the techie people and say we wanted this, that, and the other because he didn't understand. But similarly, when he produced what he thought they wanted, they didn't understand that either. So we have to teach people Uh, A bit the language of the others Um, Mm -hmm. we're never going to make people data scientists who and the data science will never be completely the other way either but we've got to try and find a way to make these more common in terms of features
0: so it seems like there's an opportunity there, I guess to bridge that gap between I guess accountants slash business professionals and, and, and data scientists and and with that with that in mind do you think ICAST has a potential role to play around Absolutely. reflecting its syllabus?
1: I, I think what, one of the things we're looking at is um, should we give, be the professional home for some data scientists? So what does that mean? Well, if you think about the professional accountant, we, we have a number of things, strings to our bow. We, we, we have some technical skills, of course we do. We, we know accounting, we know tax, we know auditing, we know a few other things beside. But above all, we, we have a professional ethos, we have ethics. Uh, And if you take somebody who's a data scientist, who may be very clever at these aspects, technical aspects of what they do, A, do they understand what audits are trying to do, for example, if you take that example, and B, do they understand why we make the decisions we make, because we have that professional background. So we could very easily see that we could make a a digital associate of a, a data scientist who would have uh, modular training in auditing and in accounting, not enough to understand what their colleagues are doing. And secondly, uh, they would have ethics as well. So they would understand the approach that accountants, professional accountants take to the work that they do. Uh, because you can't have a situation where one side of the house is playing fast and loose with the rules, where the other, house is, the other side is trying to play to the rules. So uh, I'm not saying they do play fast and loose, but there's always that risk that they might. And so I think we can, we can help
0: value add bring value add to the um, to the the technology space as well another area that I was really keen to talk to you about is your role as ICA's like, president a very illustrious role and a very important role so talk to us about your time thus far
1: I found it really fascinating um, I'm very honoured to do it um, I came to the presidency um, with my eyes open but I think it's been a lot more valuable than, than even I thought at the time. I've had a great opportunity to meet with many members uh, across a broad spectrum of geographies and activities. Um, I've been involved in many of the discussions around the development of the Institute whether that's in the education space or the member services space and uh, I've been involved in um, reinforcing many of much of the good work that's been going on around trust and how we reinforce that. So um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been quite intense. Um, I think the real surprise is probably the variety of the role. Um, I, I suspected I would spend a lot more time doing one or two things, but actually I've done many, many different things. Uh, I've travelled quite a bit. That's fairly taxing, but nonetheless interesting. It, it's been quite um, quite a
0: long uh, and arduous journey, but it's been very, very enjoyable. So tell me, tell me about some of the work that ICAS is doing around increasing that member engagement or enabling that member engagement? Well, I, I
1: think uh, with the arrival of Sarah Spears, the Executive Director for Member Services, um, she's brought a wealth of new ideas and there's been a few things that haven't worked very well for a while. One of them was our website. We have some great materials, but it was very, very difficult to find it. Uh, so over time it's been revamped now, but over time that material will become more available to people. And remember, we we have members across the complete spectrum. So we have CEOs of very large corporations and chairmen of very large corporations to single practitioners, and we need to cater for all of them. So being able to self-serve on information and expertise is vitally important for things, uh, for membership. Uh, Similarly, uh, how how do you meet like-minded individuals? Um, Again, I use use my geography analogy. I'm moving to Paris, uh, or I want to move to Paris, is anybody in paris any ca in paris who can help me understand what's involved uh, you will be surprised that somebody somewhere will have that experience and they will be very happy to feedback to you completely on their own bat and you will get the benefit of their experience that's what happened to me it will happen in the future and so we have been able to provide it through ca connect through the app uh, on the website so those are some of the facilitation methods that we can have. Of course, members have to use it, but, but if they use it, I fi- I'm sure they will find value in it. While at the same time, we, we're trying to address the issues of the people today, so we're, we're surveying members. I know there's always this problem of survey fatigue, but if you can get uh, some feedback, then at least you understand what's concerning members and uh, adapt what we supply in terms of information and support to ensure that members get what they're looking for. And in particular, when it comes to continuing professional development, which, by the way, is still important, we can adapt what people need in their varied
0: lives and their very busy lives. So, Mike, we're we're, we're nearing the end of the podcast. And thank you again um, for your time. I guess I've got one last parting question for you. And that's really around what does what does the next six months hold for yourself as ICAS president? And what does the future hold for for Mike McKeon?
1: Well, first of all, within ICAS, I think there's still an agenda that we have to keep pushing forward. And that agenda is on the member services, the member of value proposition that still needs to carry on. It will carry on beyond my presidency. Um, whoever takes on the mantle after me will, will certainly have to carry that on. Uh, I think the other aspect of it is, is to continue to drive for the evolution of the ICAS qualification and, and what people study for. There's already a lot going on, but it doesn't stop. And uh, I just seek to encourage all the teams involved in that to think about the future, think about what is required, think about the refreshing of the value proposition for that qualification, because it is the lifeblood of what we do. So there's all of that. There's more members to meet. There's more uh, opportunities to have discussions with regulators uh, on how we develop the accounting and auditing profession going forward. Uh, And so that, that will carry on. Uh, for me personally, um, I have uh, enjoyed my time and will continue to do so beyond this. I don't really know, but I've never really sat down and planned my career in any great depth. As you, as you may recall, I said at the beginning, I went to Paris back 30 years ago for six months and stayed 11 years. So who knows, I might do something else at the end of this. I don't know. Uh, uh,
0: at the moment, six months is a long time to plan. We'll see. It's very refreshing to hear. And you sometimes hear a lot of people talking about making five, ten, years, 10 year plans. Um, I struggle with five weeks. <laughs> if anyone wants to
1: connect with you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on the website. They can get hold of me through my email address. I think it's emberkean at icast.com. And you can get hold of me through LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Fantastic. Thank you for your time, Mike.
0: Not at all, really. Great to talk to you. That's all for this episode of the CA Agenda. Join me next time when I'll be speaking to Johnny Jacobs.